I mean, I, I, I remember having a, right at the end of the run, I, I was in line at Starbucks at one of the hotels we were staying at. And, and Duff Did you was, hand Duff the money or the, or the clerk? <laughs> <laughs> no, I just said to Duff, why? I don't understand it. You guys, multi-millionaires, you know, why do you have to put up with this bullshit, you know? Thanks for checking out Party Like a Rockstar podcast. I'm your host, Joel Miller. Today's episode is brought to you by Misha's Kind Foods. They're an LA-based small business making the world's finest non-dairy cheese spreads on the market today. They're delicious and healthy, made from a cashew and almond milk, and blended with various locally sourced fresh herbs, vegetables, and spices. There's no vegetable oils, soy, fillers, starches, or nutritional yeast. It's lactose-free, paleo, keto, kosher perev, and 100% vegan. Enjoy the show. Hey, Graham. Long time no see, dude. Yeah, how are you? I'm good. Good. And now, are you, are you performing at the moment? Are you, I mean, are you playing instruments rather than teching? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. That's, that's what I'm... Uh, yeah, I'm mainly doing... Uh, I'm actually playing with the fray, actually. Oh, yeah. Uh, have been for, I guess, a few years now. Um, I was talking to Howard Hopkins the other day. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, he lives. I, I live in Austin again, and and he's uh, he's out here. So yeah, we see each other all the time. I actually, have all the phrase gear at Soundcheck Austin here. Oh, okay, um, okay, okay. Yeah. He's, getting ready, he's getting ready for Genesis. So um, yeah, he's it. doing that, and the phrase just been in like one-off mode for the last two years. Right. So I've kind of taken over like tour manager, production manager duties, as well as playing bass with them. So, <laughs> so <laughs> until they do another tour, um, yeah. I'll just be doing that. Yeah. Well, it's good to stay busy. Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. Let me introduce you guys and we'll get going. So Graham Cooper began working in music in 1977. He's worked for the B-52s, Garbage, STP, Living Color, Lyle Lovett, No Doubt, Nine Inch Nails, Slayer, Tori Amos, Tracy Chapman, Ugly Kid Joe, Cake, and Morphine. Einar Peterson is a bass player. He's worked with The Awful Truth, Gowdy, Casey Crowley, Lord Friday the 13th, Jeff Klein, Kelly Clarkson, Reba McIntyre, The Fray, Stone Wheels, Radney Foster, and members of both Tool and Weezer. I think this is the first time that I've actually talked to Graham outside of a production office. <laughs> so, so this is this what do you is want good. this is good are, are you nicer outside of the production office I'm always nice i'm always nice so i was doing some research on uh i figured with your name on i'd find all this information about you but alas <laughs> have you typed your name into youtube oh yeah uh, oh uh, i probably know what you're getting at um maybe one of the, one of, the, one of my favorite hits that comes up is when uh when Kelly Clarkson called me out on stage to, to uh, act like a backup dancer. Is that what you're getting at? There was a few. So there's, so I type you in the first one that comes up is Kelly Clarkson's sexy dance. Yep. <laughs> and I was like, okay, he's a dancer. And then, um, then there's another one where she's just talking about the guys in the band. So she just basically the gist on you is she's happy you're single and from Texas. <laughs> Very <laughs> happy you're from Texas. And then uh, there's one here where you're wearing a Miss Universe uh, thing. Yep. And then it totally no, jumps. Because I have a new puppy. Sorry about sorry about the walk. I got to keep an eye on her. Oh, you're golden. Uh, and then it totally makes a jump 
to attribute at the Nordic Heritage Museum. Oh, <laughs> which is I'm I'm presuming it's not you. Well, <laughs> but then, and then there's another guy. There's a what's tribute. Player. What's the tribute to? The tribute is uh, it's in Washington, Seattle, Washington, and it's a Nordic Heritage Museum thing. Honestly, I didn't click on the link. But oh, okay. I thought it was funny. So your name is more common than I thought. And then there's like a super scary looking hockey player named oh, Rolf yeah. Einer Peterson. And I was yeah. like, whoa, <laughs> he's yeah. like the evil Einer. <laughs> you know, there's actually and 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 uh, I my side of the, my family actually pronounces it Einar, sort of like reindeer. Right. Einar, OK. Um, and it's a and, and it's it's culturally or I guess uh, by area, you'll find this a little bit differently. But yeah, it's weird where the name pops up. Like there was a catcher who just now retired from the Cleveland Indians from Cuba, whose name was Einar Diaz. Um, and uh, it, the Nordic influence is sort of everywhere. Um, and funny enough, um, my Latino brothers and sisters, um, because phonetically in the Spanish language, uh, they're the ones that say that that get that pronounce it Anar upon looking at it. Um, yeah. yeah, I thought you were going to come up with a thing googling about barbershop music. So uh, I did find that it's called that old barbershop style. Is that you? Yeah. Nope, that's my grandfather. Um, it's really cool stuff. Have you heard this, Graham? No. Oh, no. you got to type it in. It was fantastic. Yeah, that's a crazy one. I'm the, I'm the third, right? So it's, it's, it's him and then my dad and me. Um, and my grandfather was an insanely like prolific, um, writer and arranger of barbershop music. Um, and in fact, when my parents got together, my mom's dad was a Dixieland jazz drummer. I have his 1938 Gretsch kit at still. Oh. Now it's a piece of art in my, in my, in my house. But, uh, yeah, beautiful thing. But when when they got together, um, E number one invited my, my mom's dad to some barbershop stuff because found he was in music. Turns out he had a great tenor voice, so he sang barbershop like the whole rest of his life. But Graham's a hell of a singer. He leaves the shower door open so everyone can hear, yeah. <laughs> and we appreciate it every time. <laughs> but yeah, uh, he actually um, to the day he died wrote tons of stuff, and to this day. Um, there are still tons of his songs performed all over the world in contests. And I actually went uh, in my 20s to a tribute in Lafayette, where all these barbershop quartets and ensembles came from all over the world to pay tribute to the barbershop society's two most prolific contributors. And it was my grandfather and Irving Berlin. This is the weirdest oh, thing. Oh, wow. <laughs> it was a whole night of all of them doing Irving Berlin songs and in our Peterson senior songs. Um, what a magical and, moment. So were you the only one from your family who attended or? No, I, I come from a big family. We were all there. And my, one of my uncles, Leif, um, he was a singer with the Tommy Dorsey orchestra for like 15 years. Um, so, you know, yeah. So but when you but, were a kid, you're, you're a little dude, you're deciding what you want to do with your life. Uh, I'm, did you choose early on you wanted to be a musician? And then I'm assuming everybody was quite supportive. Uh, yes, everyone was very supportive, but also very realistic. You know, my, my grandfather, although second to Irving Berlin in an entire genre of American music. Irving who? I don't know. I know Einar Peterson. I don't know yeah. that's Irving Berlin yeah. guy. Well, he never made a dime from it. Um, and so, you know, there was that aspect with my, my dad, my 
parents, you know, his brother who sang with Tommy Dorsey for 15 years, you know, sang in front of presidents and on the, you know, Tonight Show. But, you know, once he decided to have a family in his 50s, he had to get a real job. Like, you know, so there's the reality of the path sure. uh, was always, you know, at least something that I had reference to. You do know? you sing backup when you're playing with the fray or whoever you happen to be yeah. working with? Or you yeah. do? Can yeah. you do barbershop stuff? Uh, yeah, the funny thing is, I just produced at the studio that that I that I have I'm partner with here in Austin. Um, we just did this band Stone Wheels, who's like a psychedelic sort of, you know, Doug Som kind of Towns Van Zant kind of kind of group, right? And I play with them from time to time. Um, but one song, uh, Andrew, the the songwriter, wanted to have a, a an acapella sort of Beach Boysy intro and then some Beach Boysy types up. So I really did like, it was really fun because I got to do, you know, some stuff that, you know, usually I just do to get a laugh, but, um, you know, cause that's, that styles, it's, it's, it's kitschy, it's, it's goofy, but it's so pure and, and, and so much fun. Like, you know, there's a video, I, it's, um, oh God, what's his name? Uh, Mary Poppins, Dick Van Dyke. Dick Van Dyke, he's in a Denny's with his barbershop quartet and he decide they all get up and they, you know, he's 99. I don't know. He's, he's a million years old and he gets up and he does the barbershop stuff in the Denny's for everybody there. And somebody records it. And it's, it's, it's so much fun. It's such amazing. a good guy it's amazing to watch just like four men, like, you know, with, with nothing else, just burp, hit the little pitch pipe and then bang. And, and the movements, uh, it's so sophisticated. Um, but to watch them and to hear them like just kind of like dance through that stuff is is it's amazing it's yeah. really neat okay so graham so you so was your family supportive of you working initially in theater am i right you started with the theater stuff well i did um and no my parents were divorced uh so uh, i think my mother was putting her hair out um and when i left school again at that time 1975 four whatever uh, you know, there wasn't the, really the support for kids leaving school to go into fields that were, you know, kind of unknown. So <clears throat> I spent a couple of years bumming around and then around about 1977, a friend of mine called me and said, do you still want to do something? And if you do, you better get on the train now and come up to the West End of London because we have a show, a musical, not very good, uh, that needs a sound operator. And they couldn't find anyone, believe it or not, to do it because of the no one wanted to stick their reputation. I had no reputation. So I took on the, uh, the job, which I did for about three or four months. And I must have impressed somebody because they then switched me over to Jesus Christ Superstar. Right. In the West End. And I did that for about a year. There was two soundboard operators and, uh, you know, it was following cues and stuff like that. So, again, you know, no real training. Um, and then I kind of got bored and went into the same company that was employing me. I went into lighting. And uh, being a little bit more artistic at school and the rest of it, I kind of got into it, the colours and whatever, you know. And so uh, that's the start point, really. And so during that whole period, I was meeting small bands, you know, going to pubs and clubs, whatever, volunteering my services for free and just going from there. And slowly, over a few years, still doing the lights, um, a, a band called Way of the West, were going to the states they were doing a small kind of clubby tour across the states i was going and then they 
they needed somebody to organize themselves. So I kind of got that job and that was really the start point for me where I am today. Ah. So, did you, uh, when you were working with Living Color, did Corey tell you about how much he is, how much uh, Jesus Christ Music Star w- went to him? No, nah, not really. You know, the weird thing with that was that it came up and it was very much, um, the question was, when it was posed to me back then, was how do you feel about working for a, a black rock band? And I thought, fine, you know. <laughs> well, who's asking the question? Oh, no, I can't say. But okay, but the question was posed. It wasn't. It wasn't posed in a, you know, in a sinister way. But it was just posed because it was not usual. You know, these, these black. I was gonna be like, is it those Guns and Roses guys? I didn't know. I, I asked him. I'm like, well, didn't it. you tour with Guns and Roses? And he goes, No, we did one show, and I didn't really get along with Axel. I was like, Oh, sorry. <laughs> well, I I, I I worked with the Velvet Revolver, which was the Guns N' Roses. Oh, know. sure. That that's you know from STP, we then went on. Was Scott get signed up to do the Velvet Revolver tour, and he was surrounded by Guns N' Roses crew, and so he made a point of saying, "I need someone from the STP guys to come in and help me out." And because you know, lucky old me, um, I got that job, and uh, we had then another. We had two years of interesting times were you with maxi was with you or no uh no maxi never did guns and roses with me anyway he, he did, did guns. i thought he did he velvet was, too no, he's yeah he, that i know but i uh i thought he did velvet as well but maybe i'm wrong well he may, he may well have done um the, the thing was all i not during my time as far as i remember we we were going through monitor engineers pretty quick um and Shocker. I, remember, <laughs> I remember seeing yeah i remember seeing wyland throw his megaphone across the stage towards the monitor engineer who fortunately when I shouted duck, he ducked, but it's, you know, but Maxie may well have done it. May well have done it. later on. See when Graham probably, speaks, people listen. Duck. Ah. Uh, you know, yeah. I would have been uh, like goose. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. You know, we, we had, we had some really interesting times. I remember being on stage at Soundcheck. Uh, in California for an outdoor event and the night before we'd been in Vegas at the Hard Rock and we had a real meltdown scene with the band and so much so caused by only one person but it had rolled over and so we had this scene on stage where I'm in the middle of Matt Sorum and Duff McKagan you know both bare-chested about to take each other out you know there was only gonna be one winner really but you, you know, so I, I had to kind of, you know, calm them down. And this is all, again, this is the, the the leftovers of STP rolling into a velvet revolver, you know, that whole, you know, the whole thing there. And so um, you become very much the diplomat, the very much the, you know, trying to calm everyone down and not get distracted by other things going off, you know, so... Yeah. I mean, in all seriousness, I would think that'd be kind of hard with the personalities in that band specifically. Uh, I don't think that'd be the cushiest gig. Uh, well, you know what the thing was for me, I, I found them all, uh, the Guns N' Roses guys, sweet as. Yeah. Very, very sweet, you know, easy to get on with. Um, and, uh, great times you know but there's a lot of chaos there's a lot of managers involved a lot of you know politics and politics when it gets into the game it's very hard it's very hard and so you're having to deal with and you're treading on eggshells all the time 
you know, you're trying really to make the thing work and get through to the next show, but it can be very hard. Do you think that time of Scott's life was difficult for him? Performing with a different band? Um, I don't, you know, the thing, the thing with STP was that they, they could have been such a huge band. Yeah. Huge band. Uh, but they were unfortunately for them. And, and you know, I, I, I did their very first European tour. Mm -hmm. they, first came, they first came to Europe in 1994, whatever it was. Small clubs. Wyland was fine. Everyone was fine. They went back to the States. They did that tour and it all went wrong. Then I came back to do... Uh, I, I mean, I left them in Eindhoven at a 600 capacity show. Within maybe a year or so, I was back with them doing a headline date, Kansas City, 19,000. That yeah. was the, the jump. And, you know, we we then went through this whole game, which was, you know, Wyden was doing his his thing. It was very much, you know, we all had to work around him. Everything was geared around him all the time. And then that all broke up. And then he got signed up to do um, Velvet. And they obviously rescued him. They took him away, cleaned him up, brought him back in. And they did everything for him. You know, they, they worked really hard to make it work. And they, they had gone through the nightmare already, you know, with Axel. And I don't think they really wanted to go through it again. All they wanted to do is just have a good time. That was yeah. all they wanted, you know. And, and everyone had their, I mean, Matt Sorum was like, he had his heart on his sleeve. He, you know, this was his project. For once in his life, this was his project. He really wanted this to work. And he just felt frustrated that, other factors were playing into it now. And so we ran that two years. And I, and I was bounced off that tour twice. No, no kidding. No reason given. Huh. I, was, I was reinstated twice. I left much to the bands, well, Wyland especially, he went mad. You know, he came after me and he, he couldn't believe that I was going to leave. And I said, <laughs> really? You know, and uh, I think his last words to me were, you'll never work in this business again. And I thought, you know what? I've heard that before somewhere. And so, <laughs> so we did all that. And then I came back at the end with this period. I, I, I'd been, I just finished off Tracy Chapman. In so I love, love, love Tracy Chapman. Now, all the things they say about her, forget it. It's not true. I, I had three tours with her and she was fab. Yeah. Back, so I'd sent them a note saying, hey, do you need a bag man? You know, they were doing three shows at the end of the Christmas Eve, you know, wherever, New York. Straight away, yeah. Are you available? I said, sure. Oh, you can be TM as well. I said, oh, okay. You know, so I came back and I did those three shows. And you know what? Thank you. No more. That was it. I, I, yeah. I just, you know, the drama that was going on, trying to outdo each other at the time was just crazy. There's so many stories. There's so many stories. So what's the drama for a guy like you? I mean, you're not getting calls at four in the morning for hamburgers and, uh, candy bars anymore so is it just people arguing all the time and you're tired of hearing it or what, what is it that you're me dealing with that sucks so much yeah um no i can do all that it's, it's where where the drama kicks in is is the um mind games that go off with people you know trying to outdo each other and that just spirals down into a mess and you're trying to sort it out and and so i've been lucky to work with artists that are completely different to that. They're, they're focused 
and and it's an enjoyable experience and that's really at the end of the day what i'm looking for the tracy you know? chapman's of the world <laughs> oh, no, but, but that was great you know it, it was and, and katie lang you know with kd i mean i've been working for her with her for 2008 we did a tour of 2019 i have to say it was probably the best tour i've ever done purely because everything came together the weather sold out shows fab band lovely crew and i was driving her around it was just you know great so when people say to me oh would you like to come back and work for this particular artist or and i'd probably say you know what thanks but no thanks yeah i'm i'm getting older i'm getting I, i'm getting old i mean i'm getting old and i'm getting to that point where you know i've done it all you yeah know, i really need to go back and have this horrible mess yeah so from watching that with kelly clarkson i got that same feeling of like uh you're working with your family almost it's like the vibe you can see from that are are you as close as it appears uh watching your youtube <laughs> my youtube thing yeah i, know, I don't know um, yeah i mean you know uh yes that was a 10-year stretch for me um and so Long yeah, time. yeah um and and it was like we spent you know definitely those first six years i mean those were long tours um and and yeah around each other a lot that one of one of kelly's sort of best assets i think is that she did everything she could to make sure that you know it's it's weird to say monotony when you're on a giant like enormous dome tour like that but yeah it's fucking groundhog day every day and you're in all these great cities and you don't get to go enjoy them um so she would really do a great job of of breaking the tension like on a weekly basis you know when i first met the fray a great example is that was a summer tour um where they was a co-headlining thing right and that's where i first met howard and and all those guys and they kind of would one up each other like the fray would show up with like uh one one morning kelly came off of her bus and all the fray guys are in a in a baby pool um in front of her her bus door with a cardboard cutout of a thing that they found at a record store or something on the way there and then the next day we wake up and kelly brings in like a big bouncy house with a water slide on it in the parking lot at the next thing oh so, total one up there you know, the water so, slides big so stuff like that. It, it was it was really fun and and all those stage things it was pranks were uh, were a big part of our tours um for sure last show we would obliterate whoever was on tour with us during their show and our crew would destroy us on ours but we would have we would have pranks throughout the the year that what were some of the pranks i've heard some brutal ones on here there was one when they poured honey all over everybody in the act oh and we didn't ever go that far but we mean really far. bad um yeah you know i mean i mean one my first tour with them um it was 2005, I guess. It, it was it was after she broke. Basically, the band was on the road for two years. They started in a van and ended up with the with the biggest record in the world. Um, thought they were done. Came home to LA. I was living in LA at the time. Bass player, drummer had taken other gigs. One of the guitar players got fired, which is another great YouTube clip that you can see of him getting fired on stage in Ireland. Um, <laughs> I missed that one. All right. Um, Was it Graham? But, <laughs> but so, so when we started that tour, I, I, you know, it was Zach Alfred on drums, me on bass. And then Aben Eubanks, who was in the, uh, the opening band came in as a guitar player. And so 
that whole tour was nothing but a victory lap for them. That tour came up because I think it was Ford Motor Company was like, hey, we want you to go back on the road, go sell some of our cars. Here's a big box of money. Can you do it? Yes. They scrambled to put a band together. But anyway, one prank that began during that tour was at the end of the night, we'd play Since You've Been Gone, obviously. And Kelly and Jimmy Messer would, would appear in the crowd on a thing, start the song, just guitar and her. And then they would walk back, do the thing, come back on stage. Well, about two weeks before, maybe three weeks before the end of the tour, when they would come up, the crew guys that were ushering them through the crowd decided one day to come up and just grab me around the waist, pick me up and take me off into the loading dock and stick me in a truck. <laughs> and I just made my way back out and it was hilarious and no one, no one knew, you know, but then every night they would grab a new person um, and take them off stage. And the last night of the show or of the tour, we had lots of pranks going on, but this one thing at the end of the show, we all knew that there were two people that hadn't gotten yet, Kelly and our drummer, Zach Alford. So when they came up on the stage after that one, the, the crew guy that usually that had, that was usually grabbing people, he came to me and sort of power slid on his knees with a pair of wire cutters. And I felt somebody behind me grab me around my waist and he snips two of my three strings off and gets up and fucks up. And so I'm like, God damn it. And so, and they're picking, they're, they're picking people off. They pick off our keyboard player. His tech is on the side of the, of the stage playing his parts as they take him off. They take Kelly, pick Kelly up, take her off the back deck, throw her in a, in a, in a in a truck and shut the door and then somebody goes and grabs zach alford around the waist pulls his in-ears because he he wasn't wireless he had a hard wired on a you know on a mixer and take him off and nothing stops and we're all looking around like what the hell well it was pete moffitt his drum tech who was off in the wings of the stage on what we called the mobilator that was this thing that we used for the middle set that would it was a mobile stage that would roll out he was on there front of house just was ready to like a kit b kit as soon as they they pulled him up it was seamless it was amazing um and then you know we we did stuff like for the opening band of that year we did the trick where like as they're playing their last song we would just one at a time our the band would walk out and just take a piece of the drum set off just slowly as the song went on till it was just left with a high hint you know that kind of stuff like yeah so what's this like for upper management guys, Ram? I mean, you're we're you're hearing all this crap going on on the stage. You're in the office. Are is your head going like, ugh, I'm the one who has to deal with it, and it's not funny? Or are you giggling away sometimes too? Uh, well, you know, it's. I, I remember. I, I mean, when I was TMing STP, we were on tour with the Red Hot Chili Peppers. We had done two legs across America, and we were up in Seattle. Whatever the the Norma Dome was up there. It's just the um, popcorn. <laughs> yeah. The it's pop the popcorn. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Hey, you heard the I was there. You were there. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was, I was the one who had to clean it all up. Yeah. But you know, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the, the, the thing was that the um, both bands were the same management company, Q Prime. Yeah. Cliff, Cliff Bernstein was there. Cliff Bernstein never said anything. He, and he knew what was about to happen because the band were all getting dressed up in their, you know, uh, so, but anyway, prior to that, the band STP on stage, the Chili Peppers crew decided to pull the pull the prank 
of dumping from from above as much popcorn as they can throw on the stage. Buttered popcorn. Yeah, that's where they went wrong. They put buttered popcorn. So half time, as the band is changing over, how many towels can we get on stage to dry the stage? Meanwhile, downstairs, STP are dressing up in these animal outfits with heads. You know, the donkey, the pig, whatever it is. Oh, is that from the sex and violence video? Is it the same stuff? I don't know. They they all had the blue tuxedo suits on, you know, light blue. Okay. Because Peppers are on stage, they're doing their thing. And so at the given moment, STP are going to storm the stage with loads of cans of, I don't know, whipped cream or whatever it's going to be. And so they charge on the stage and they're spraying everybody with this. And of course, it's almost like a cartoon scene of watching the feet going like this and going nowhere, you know. So we eventually get the band off stage down and the show ends and the peppers come down and it's like the worst thing ever. It is the worst thing ever. The only guy that thought it was funny and got it was Chad. The other <laughs> really? Thing, yeah. Chad was the only one that got it. He thought it was hilarious. Well, if you remember, yeah. remember Bobby Lee? Do you remember Bobby? Bobby Lee was the tour manager for the children. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, you know, was he tour manager or production manager? Maybe production. I don't know. I can't yeah. remember. Product. I don't anyway, know. it was like a morgue in their dressing room. And Cliff Bernstein came in to our dressing room and said, you guys are going to have to go and apologize. <laughs> but I said, you've got to be joking. You have, they've done it to us. We're doing it to them. They should get, and they didn't have any sense of humor whatsoever. They just didn't. They didn't get any of it. And so <laughs> I don't know why, but they did. They went across. I watched them walk across, in a, in a, like going to the headmaster's <laughs> office, you know, to get <laughs> reamed out. And then they went and that was it, you know. So what, the Chili Peppers guys apologized to the STP family? No, 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 no. STP had to go and apologize to the Chilies. For hitting them with whipped cream? No. Well, yeah. Yeah. Ruining the show. I don't remember any of that. This is the second half of the story. Uh, I didn't know any of this. John Kashanti was playing guitar. He said at the end of his this 18-month world tour, that's it. Everything's ruined. Everything's ruined. (laughs) You know, I thought, you know what? (sighs) Go away. (laughs) Well, he had his flying V. I don't know. Maybe he was annoyed it had butter on it. You know, if you can't accept, if you can't take it, don't dish it out. That's all I say. You know, if you're going to. The popcorn thing was bad, man. It was. It was. It should have been something else, but it wasn't. Buttered popcorn wasn't thought through. It tasted good, though. Yeah, it did. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Was that the worst one that you've had in all the years? Um, Pranks? Yeah, I don't, you know. I don't, Tracy Chapman don't do pranks. Katie Lane don't do pranks. I mean, a lot of these guys just don't don't do it. I, I don't remember any pranks with STP. Is it tool? Uh, apart from that one, anyway. With her, yeah. she so there was a there was a, a daughter of a record label executive who saw her play in a coffee shop in college, okay. and that's where her career bloomed. Tracy. Yeah. Is that I don't, you know? I don't honestly know because I I I only came in because I was in for ITB, which was the the booking agent slash promoter of the UK and Barry Dickens was Tracy's agent and Elliot Roberts, I believe was involved with Tracy. And, um, you know, I, I would hear stories coming back, you know, how difficult she was. And, and I, and I couldn't tell you how she was, you know, picked up originally or whatever. All I can tell you is that I was, I had a call and someone said, Oh, you know, Tracy's looking for a TM and 
immediately I said, I'm not interested. I've heard the stories. I don't want to do it, you know. And it, it kind of went around. And every time someone called me, I've got a job for you. I've got a job for you. I said, oh, yeah, who's it? Tracy Chapman. So, anyway, so it came about that she called me. And we had a conversation. And I didn't think I'd got the job. But then her ma then manager, Steve Jensen, called and said, she, she wants you to do the tour. So we this was in 2005. And we did a UK into Europe tour. Uh, which went really well. And then she asked me back 2006, and then again in 2008, by which time uh, she'd opened up. You know, she, she's a very private person. She's very yeah. kind of, you know, she wants, she wants things done her way. Um, but I never, I never found her at all. And we used to do long sound checks. That may be something that the crew didn't want to do, especially, I remember Paris, I remember we, we were at the uh, Olympian three nights there. And even on the third night, she still wanted to do a, two three hour sound check oh geez but have but, you ever seen her in the footage where she sang at the nelson mandela uh con the tribute concert yeah you have to watch that footage if you yeah. haven't seen it it blew her up overnight she was supposed to do i want to say one track only maybe two but stevie wonder was stuck in his limo and he wasn't at the venue so they put her back on the stage so she ended up singing three total songs i feel like i might be wrong on the number counts here but um the next day she sold like eight billion records you know everything went nuts because she's it's so so good well there was a thing where a few years back uh when she'd stopped performing i guess fast car was featured on a uh a celebrity you know voice challenge competition whatever on tv in the uk and that just that on tv powered that thing back up again you know you know, songwriting um, always just doesn't go away. Strong songwriters yeah. are there yeah. for the life. And I think that's one of the reasons why she decided that I, I think, you know, I can't speak for her personally, but I mean, my feeling was that uh, her decision to kind of pull back from performing and, and working was just purely that she kind of grown tired of the industry, mm. um, kind of grown tired of any kind of control of, of what she was trying to do. And having written those songs, which became huge hits, um, there was that income stream, which she could live off, you know. And I did have dinner with her once. And, and I was, and I, 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 you know, she said, oh, you're in San Francisco, come and have, come have dinner. Thought, this is it. She's going to tell me she's going to go on the road. And no, it wasn't that. It was just purely, you know, a personal thing. And I just, I hope that. She's, that's all, she's all, Graham, call Einer and ask him about Kelly Clarkson. <laughs> <laughs> anyway so you know it, it, great artists you know Fantastic. Again, you know I, I i really don't stay in touch with them because you know it's business that i i don't really have many um relationships if you like i i try not to because um i don't want to get let down yeah you know, this is a this is the kind of you feel like you're getting close to somebody and next thing you know they don't call you and they're going on tour and it's happened before. And uh, so I've tried to steer clear of crew guys anytime, anytime, but, but bands yeah. try to steer clear of. Yeah. As Bobby about. Schneider actually said in his interview, uh, you get let down a bit here and there. He's like, you know, we get forgotten about quickly sometimes when there's really no reason for it. Well, you know, the thing is with, with that is that they, they, they don't really articulate why they're doing it. They, they don't sort of come forward. They, they kind of get a little cowardly about it. They should really sort of say to you, yeah, 
we're going to change track here, you know, like musicians, you know, we decided to, you know, freshen it up, you know, we're going to have a new drummer or whatever it might be. Um, and sometimes with the crew as well, you just need to tell them, you know, listen, this time around, we're using someone else. Yeah. It's much easier that way. I remember, so when I did that tour with you, the it was for the album four, A&R, it was uh, the STP album four. I don't remember Scott um, being terribly bad with drugs and stuff. Is it just that I wasn't privy to it? I mean, was he pretty chill on that tour? I know we had Heavy C, and you guys were all separate. You guys were flying differently than us. You were staying at different hotels, I think, a lot of the time. But um, was I just missing stuff, or was he pretty clean the whole time no (laughs) (laughs) i tell you what we did the tour in 19 the um i'm trying to think which one it was now um i know it was in 2000 that was the family values tour no this is before that or uh two family values was was stained right yeah so that's after me that's 2001 2002 something like that 2001 then yeah. Um, we with the family values tour the plan the plan of action was we're going to reduce the potential drug issue by hubbing out of cities so we'd hub out of new york for 13 nights out of chicago for a few nights out of dallas for a few whatever it was and um in the in the hope that we could keep him away from drugs okay it never worked it never worked um, because you, you know, when you want something and you're not prepared to, you know, get off the stuff, be it alcohol, drug, whatever it is, the dependency you have, you, the individual has to make that decision that they want to get off it. Yeah. Uh, not us, not the support staff, not the band, not the manager, whatever you have to do it. And of course, when he had his, before Jeff came on board, heavy C, he had other guys working for him and at no point did he ever pick the phone up and say, hey, listen, um, so have you see, I've booked an appointment. We're going to go to the local um, AA place. We're going to go in there and have a meeting. And da, da. He never did that. He always relied on other people to do it for him. And that was a big telltale sign. Yeah. He doesn't want to do it. And so have you see quit? You know, he came back, he quit. You know, he'd had enough. You know, I can't, I'm not your cover here. I'm not, I'm not going to let everyone think you're okay when clearly you're not. Yeah. But, but what he did um, was he got off all those illegal drugs and went into. Oh, the pills. Yeah. So the Vicodin tour, which was the family values tour was the, you know, was a classic in all, yeah. in all senses. See, I had this innocence. I was a young guy and I, I just, I think I missed out on a lot because I'd never been exposed to it and I didn't know any better. No, no, you're, you're right. I mean, I wasn't either. I mean, I, I remember him one night in Toronto doing all this and I'm thinking, are you, can I give you my- Are you cold? You want something? Yeah. And it wasn't, he, he, you know, he wanted to get rid of me. I mean, he, I'm going, I'm going to go to bed now. Okay. You know, a bit early, but okay. But he, he needed to get me out of that area. So he'd go- back to his room and then swing around and out the door and get stuff. Yeah. It's so, it's so sad. I, you know, the guy was, I tried on my book to focus on these good moments with him because he was a good guy. And then it's mostly for his children. It's not really for fans and stuff. It's that his kids would see that there was a good side to this guy. Um, he was, the, a. I think that I think the problem was in the end that his wife 
when he died, wrote how she felt about everything. And she yeah. got, a lot, got a lot of flack. But I tell you what, everything she wrote was true. It was yeah. nothing. But the problem is the fans don't want to know about this. No, and, he was a human being. I read what she wrote. And I mean... It's hard because they say when someone's dead, you know, you blah, 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 blah. But it, yeah, why brush it under the carpet? She went through some tough stuff because of it all. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so did his last wife, you know, I mean, she, she was sweet as, and she, she loved him to death and she'd do anything for him. And, you know, but at times you think, why are you with him? You know, and, and I love Scott, you know, I, I, I've known, I knew Scott for a long, long time. And, We'd have we'd have really sort of you know we'd sit in the back of the bus and we would talk about the old days you know about this and this yeah. and this, but you know what the following day, it walked past you as though you never existed. Yeah, there was this. So I have this one story in our and it's uh, I'm there. We're trying to go find Scott, and so I go into the parking lot at some venue somewhere I don't know, and I see a crowd of people. So I walk towards the crowd of people. And Scott is with a, a with a pink little fishing pole from like Toys R Us. It's a children's fishing pole. And he's fishing in a stream the size of this pen. And people are starting to come and come and come. So I'm thinking there's nobody with me. And I'm thinking like, oh, God, I, what am I going to do here? This is way over my pay grade. And so I sit down next to him. I'm like, how are you doing? <laughs> and, and he was like, I'm good. He's like, you know, have you ever been fishing Rifkin? And I'm like, um, uh, and you know, actually, no, I never, I never have been. And he goes, well, uh, we should go fishing sometime. And it was just so sad. And uh, I said to him, well, why don't we go inside? Cause you got to play here in a bit. And maybe on the next day off, you and me could go fishing. I'm a real young guy. I'm thinking maybe we're really going to go fishing one day, <laughs> but I'm so relieved that he was going to get up and walk in with me because there's no way I could make him do that. He's a pretty tough guy. Um, and and I, I just, that event meant a lot to me. I mean, he was probably all drugged out now that we talk about it because it makes no sense, but it's such a sad moment. And then he went inside and did a great show. So can you turn that, you know, you're a performer and can, can you turn this switch that easily where you, you go out on the stage and you kill it when you have this inner turmoil stuff going on in your head? You know, there is something to uh, there is something even down to there's a great bit that Patton Oswalt does. <laughs> oh, he's about, such a good comic. I love him about about stage health. And he does a bit about how. There's this thing that if you have, if you're, if you're jonesing from junk or if you got the flu or a stomach virus, you got the shits, like whatever it is, you got a migraine. Um, there's something that happens to you physically. I'm sure it's a mix of adrenaline and everything else and just the task at hand that somehow keeps oh, those things yeah. from happening. His, his bit is about how it failed him one night and he shits his pants in front of a crowd of people. Um, but <laughs> yes, there have been countless times. But the rest that, worked you know, out. <laughs> yeah, but there's, there's been countless times just being, just having, you know, 104 temperature and the flu and, you know, there's 20,000 people out there. I got to make a paycheck and we're in fucking Kuala Lumpur. And so there ain't no sub. So you're sucking it up um, because 
people didn't come pay to see you. They came to see her. So get your ass out there and do it. Um, there's those, those things. So I can imagine for my friends who battled with the same things that, that Scott battled with. Um, yeah. Knowing that at least there's this couple of hour window in this day that I just am ready to fucking end it all that those two hours might make me wake up tomorrow, you know, and one of the coolest moments that I ever, ever had on the road. Yeah. Uh, and was the year that that Velvet Revolver called it quits. Like, I think that I think the show was in Germany, the last show that they played. Um, I show up in I show up in Manchester, England, from Brisbane, Australia. Crazy, going over, starting a tour with Kelly in uh, a European tour, starting in the UK, starting in Manchester. Never played the Manchester Apollo. Super stoked get to london at like four o'clock in the morning get to the malmaison at about 5 15 5 30 and um I'm, my plan was to drop my bags run down breakfast started at six my favorite thing overseas is breakfast so i was gonna throw down and then sleep english breakfast though no offense graham oh <laughs> what oh yeah. i'm not a big yeah. fan of an english breakfast no oh well, I'll have yours because there's nothing better than uh, fucking black pudding and sausages and eggs and beans, dude. Uh, and, and breakfast spreads in in UK and European hotels are the best. Um, anyway, um, that was my plan. <laughs> I run up, come back down, get a seat. I'm the only one in the in the in the thing. And I'm sitting there looking at the menu. I just ordered some coffee and I feel a hand on my shoulder. He goes, hey, dude. And I turned around as Duff McKagan. Oh, cool. And he goes, oh, shit, I thought you were my drummer. And I was like, I'm wearing like a beanie cap um, and like a cool jacket. But I was like, I look nothing like fucking Matt Storm. So anyway, he goes and sits on the other side of the thing. And I'm sitting there like, it's me and Duff McKagan sitting in the Malmaison fucking dining thing. Um, this is so weird. So I'm trying to be cool. I'm reading the paper. I'm waiting for my food. All I'm thinking about is him. And then I feel somebody come over. I look up and he goes, hey, you want to have breakfast? And I was like, yeah. And we sat there for three hours just pounding coffee and talking. It's a lot of eggs and, and black pudding. <laughs> well, it was just a lot of talking. You know what it, you know what it was? And, and you go back to saying how all these guys were, are such sweethearts. Like, yeah. yeah. And they're fucking smart motherfuckers, too. Um, yeah, he's interesting. He's a big punk fan. And he, he's guy. a fun guy. To it was amazing. Um, he it was like sitting it was like being like 22 years old finishing a gig somewhere and going to the denny's at four o'clock in the morning and then another friend from another gig is there and you sit down and you talk about how your band's about to break up that was, i had that conversation with Duff, his band was breaking up and he was crushed and oh. it was amazing to sit there and hear it from him and we left the thing with him going you know what dude i'm so excited about I was like, what? He was like, all this stuff, it sucks, but I'm really excited to get back to LA and do what I started doing before this tour. And I was like, what's that? He was like, I'm taking bass lessons. And I was like, go fuck yourself. And he was like, yeah. He was like, I'm taking bass lessons from dude from Weezer. And he's like, I've never learned to play with my fingers before. I've always been, a. I came from guitar and then Guns N' Roses took off and I never had a chance to do anything else. And I'm sitting there going, this is a dude who has who's responsible for not only some of the most iconic songs in in 
in rock music of all time, but also some of the most iconic bass lines within those songs. And this dude is taking lessons. Is going to fucking just try to up his game when he could be phoning it in. He's not Velvet Revolver, Scott Weiland, all those dudes. That was that was his his world. And it was so it was so inspiring to see him at his age with his accolades and everything else still go about it like it's the most important thing in the world. And it was it was it was such an amazing thing. I'll never forget that that moment with him. Uh, but yeah, and he was even like, I was like, he was like, who are you here with? And I was like, oh, Kelly Clarkson. He was like, dude, I love that new Stronger song or whatever it was. Um, and we made plans for him to come see a show at the Hollywood Bowl. We were going to be back there. And we exchanged like emails. So nice, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, do you want to tell us a story about what a dick duff was, Graham? This is a good time. <laughs> <laughs> I might have caught him on a good day. But the I'm perfect time if you want. <laughs> but you, you know what I will say is that he also... Um, studied business yeah. starbucks right isn't he an investment yeah. starbucks we, we talked about that too like that dude like yeah, yeah. Head. No, no, he, he did all that and he also told me whether it's true or not i don't know but he said during the height of the guns and roses when they were always they were all out of their heads he entrusted i believe it was his brother-in-law or somebody in the family with his wealth he was oh getting, no did it go good no no i think no, it no. went well with no yeah, he invested in these new Seattle companies that were breaking through Starbucks, yeah. Microsoft, and all these. And you know, there you go. Yeah, yeah, I had heard like his money from Starbucks is 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 no joke stuff, like real it's money. No joke. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and and you know he when he when the Guns and Roses, I don't know, greatest hits thing came out, whatever. You know, he said I got a check for you know <laughs> seven figures or what it was. You know, yeah. He made a great record with Shooter Jennings, you know, like he's still he's still out there looking for something to inspire him, which is amazing. You know, well, he's changed his career a bit. You know, he was into different kind of music. Then Guns and Roses took off. He had these business adventures. He he's a neat guy. And he wrote books. Yeah. You know, he, he did books as well. But the thing was that the, the, this is one of the things where when we did the Velvet Revolver tour, this is one thing I was learning quick was that these guys didn't need the money as such. They'd made their money. You know, they what they wanted was to have access to be able to perform, write, record, whatever, without the chaos. You know, they, they want to get. Oh, so they hire Scott Weiland, yeah, yeah. <laughs> guy who well, needs yeah. the money and lives yeah. on chaos. Yeah, exactly. So this was the this was the problem. You know, they had a guy who had no money. You know, but had to create the illusion of having money, mm. and so he couldn't stay. With well, the band, would probably stay in a certain type of hotel. He couldn't do that. He had to be in another hotel higher up because he wanted to create the illusion that he was wealthy. Mm. And so we'd have all these little things going off. But as I said before, my biggest fear when joining Guns N' Roses is that I would be like swamped with those guys and, and the crew. But in fact, they all turned out to be terribly helpful, you know, with, with being cooperative, doing what they had, but they didn't want to have the drama. What they yeah. unfortunately unknown to them, I guess, <laughs> coming down the line was the drama, which which then meant that Wyland would dictate the terms. You know, I will turn up at the venue on my terms, not your terms or the promoter. If I'm going to be two hours late, so be it. And no one did anything about it. No one fired him there and then and said, you know what? Okay, we're going to take a year off, get rid of you, and then move on. Well, but I know did. for a few minutes they were talking to Josh Todd from Buck Cherry mm -hmm. before Scott. 
mm-hmm. and they didn't pick Josh, but imagine what it would have been like with him. Cause he's, he was sober. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I remember having a right at the end of the run, I, I was in line at Starbucks at one of the hotels we were staying at. And, and Duff did you hand Duff the money or the, or the clerk? <laughs> <laughs> no, I just said to Duff, why? I don't understand it. You guys multi-millionaires, you know, why do you have to put up with this bullshit? You know? Uh, but you know, I don't know. Maybe they liked it. I don't know. Who knows? You know, there's an interview. Speaking of pain in the butts, it's a. There's an interview with. It's Duff's there. Henry Rollins there. Uh, one of the Ramones guys is there, and Johnny Rotten, and he's just trashed, and uh, he is talking so much shit in this interview. And you've got Duff and Rollins just laughing away. You guys should watch that. It's 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 just really really entertaining. He is so drunk and he's so rude. Um, it, it's very 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 he's very good. Up his reputation, I guess you know. It's one of the best. I mean, I I I love watching Johnny Rotten stuff because he's such a prick, and I don't know why, but it's really funny. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I, I saw them once on their reunion back in when it was they were playing Roskilde Festival. Uh, and they came on and then the bottle started coming their way and I think they got into the first song and then another bottle came their way and it was like throw another bottle at us again and we're off the stage another bottle comes in that was it gone clicked their feet they're out of it begs the question who in the audience was paid by them to throw that bottle throw the bottle so they could finish early and go home collect their pay anyway yeah but they they came they did their thing and they left you know so yeah uh nine inch nails when did you do nine inch nails graham uh i got the uh nod to do 1999 end of 1999 oh it was a uh uh a tour of uh europe uh and it ran into 2000 2000 we went around europe we went off to um australia New Zealand, Japan, didn't do the US on that run, um, although they were going to do it. But again, you know, it, you're working with an organization that was kind of a little bit of a disconnect. You had the band party A, band party B, uh, different transport arrangements, um, manager only fly in, would only fly in to see Trent if Concord flew there. Um, that was, you know, Okay. Anyway, so it was a kind of a little bit of an uncomfortable type of tour, um, you, you know. Drink was involved a lot, um, trying to um, uh, get through each show, and um, I was amazed how much stuff they would trash on stage, and then have someone repairing it. That you know, not not necessarily. I mean, I don't know. They were doing it. They had a lot of gear, a lot of a lot of keyboards getting trashed, and so we ran all through that. Um, the only funny story I could tell you on that particular tour was in Australia. Uh, we were playing a festival and we'd had a bad night again. And the band, Trent had left. Uh, the band were in the uh, tent discussing, you know, what to do next. And um, we hear this. And bursting through into the tent was Dave Grohl oh. and Taylor being, you know, goofy as goofy can be, right? Anyway, they all disappear. And then we get in the vans and we're driving out the festivals, cars for days. We're getting to the end of the um, drive for the, the venue. We take a left turn, we go down the road. It was all red lights, you know, bumper, bumper. And in the distance, there's the blue flashing lights. 
And as we get closer and closer and closer, we see two young men <laughs> being, being surrounded by the cops, you know, and it was them two. <laughs> and, it meant, and it meant that uh, um, Dave Grohl had to come back to Australia, I think, to, for trial. And so that was that one. So that too, it was like, okay, done it. You know, not really want to go back to that kind of, you know, drama again. And then 2007, uh, I got a call and it was Nine Inch Nails again and different management, different setup. And uh, this time it was Europe again. We started off in um, Russia and we worked our way around. We finished up in Vienna. Then we went off to China. Hong Kong, Seoul, Korea. Uh, and then we went to Australia to pick up, to do two shows that had been cancelled in Sydney. And then we ended up in Hawaii. What was going on with the with Dave and uh, with Taylor? They, they were, what did they do? They, well, they were pulled by the cops for doing whatever they were doing. They, oh, they had nothing to do with you? Nothing. To, well, no, no, no. I think they, they probably had a few drinks as well. Maybe. I don't know. But anyway, it's, it's documented out there. You know, you can check up on it. Do my research. Yeah. But um, that was the Nine Inch Nails stuff. And I, I really had a, it was a completely different type of tour. I mean, you know, there was not, none of that. It was all focused, you know, the, the only drama, which you can, you know, there were three things that cropped up, but one of them is on YouTube, I believe. And that was at the third festival. And I was talking about this earlier today. Um, they were doing a, a festival in Finland and it was the end of a three night run. And the show ended with Hurt. So they'd do their main show, curtain down, the band would go off, come back on, and then Hurt would be performed with Trent out front. And they had the screen behind them. And as it got to the end of the song, for the big crescendo at the end, the, the curtain would come up, the, the screen would come up, and the band would be behind there. Now, someone out, somewhere out there in the fields was a guy with a stack of fireworks. And it was a case of who's queuing him at the end. And he had no cue. They had, they, no one had given him a, a headset or a microphone, or whatever, a radio, nothing. So all he was doing was listening to what was going on over there. And of course, if you know the song, it, it's almost like it's finished, but it hasn't. And so the guys out there, I can't hear <laughs> Boom, press the button. And of course, then the, thing, the curtain's coming up as the fireworks kick off. <laughs> and they're, they're just going everywhere. And if you go on YouTube, I've seen it, it's there. All the fans are turning their cameras around and filming the, the, the firework display and everything else. Well, Kurt, um, Trent is still trying to finish his song. Of course, you know, we're all, we're all um, on stage and we're all designated with a band member to look after. So you get a towel and what water, whatever, and you make sure they come off and they're covered, you know, da, da, da. Well, I'm, I'm Trent's guy, you know, and, and he comes towards me like a raging bull. You know, and I'm almost like the matador with a towel, you know, and he goes flying past me straight into the dressing room and whoosh, trashes the dressing room. And of course, you know, the, 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 the fallout was just really, the promoter couldn't give me an answer at the end of the night. I said, you know, you're going to have to give me a good, answer, a, good, a good excuse for me to go to Trent to tell him what fucked up. And uh, he couldn't. So inevitably there was discussions afterwards and Trent, got a big payday out of it oh yeah and that happened three times on the tour he got paydays on top of what he's getting because they were the europeans weren't listening weren't reading weren't doing anything 
So, you should get pissed off more often. <laughs> yeah, I know. I said you could make, make a lot of money out of this, you know. Yeah, well, he's, you're good. His, his beef was, listen, you know, we had some technical problems. The promoters weren't really reading the rider properly. You know, what was required power-wise, because he takes a show out. And that show required, and all these festivals don't think about that. They think, oh, you know, the rider. You know, who reads the rider, you know? And so um, we had situations where he would try to put his show in, and suddenly there wouldn't be enough power for it, or the power would go out during the show. And so inevitably, it had to be like, oh, you know, penalty time. Yeah. So, so uh, who's taller, you or Lyle Lovett? <laughs> you're taller. Who's bigger as well? <laughs> oh, you're bigger. Yeah. Graham's scary. Beat you up. <laughs> you know, so you got, remember when we were in Alaska with STP and the band chartered this little plane to take for the day and go look at, you know, Buffalo and stuff like that. Were you on the plane with them? Uh, I don't think I was. I know. I remember, I remember going up there, but I, I can't remember. I can't remember. I remember their manager. Um, he, he hired a seaplane with a pilot and we went for fish and chips. He went to an Island somewhere up there for fish and chips. Yep. He went to a fish and chips shop on this Island. And he said it's the best thing. And we went out there, we landed in the plane, we went for fish and chips, and we flew back. The only I time thought you was- guys were looking at Buffalo and like mountain no, ranges, no, no, no. and you went for food. I don't remember the Buffalo. I don't remember the, going with the Buffalo. Well, we didn't get to go. We went and ate chips at, uh, we had no. fish and chips too, actually, or chicken and chips, I think. Chick, chill cook Charlie's in Anchorage. You know what? It's, 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 uh... <laughs> I mean, all the tours that I've done, I'm, I'm trying to remember a lot of stuff. I mean, people remind me of, you know, did you remember that? You know, I was, oh, yeah, yeah. Jeff, Jeff, Heavy C, Jeff Kramer. Yeah. He's, he's got a book out. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, it's kind of written, you know, it's, it's an assumed name. It's a, it's, it's, there's a lot of stories in there that if you know the bands he's worked with. You know who it's uh, about. You know who it's about. Yeah, yeah. He it's, had one. So he, this fella gives me a pair of shoes. And he says, don't tell anybody I gave you the shoes because everyone else is going to want them too." And he had worked with so many people. He was he was on good terms with a lot of celebrities because he didn't just do music. So I get the shoes. The first thing I do is I go in the production office and I tell these guys, hey, give me a pair of shoes. So I didn't think anybody would say anything. But like eight minutes later, he, he comes up. He's like, dude, <laughs> I, I told you, don't tell anybody, man. And I'm like, how did you find out so quick that I told everybody? Right. <laughs> I just remember the look of disappointment in his eyes of just like, God, you're so stupid. <laughs> yeah. Well, you were in a learning curve there, you know. Big learning curve. Big, big learning, learning curve. Yeah, yeah. So um, my, I was going to put together this podcast and my friend has a fifth grade daughter and she was at the house with a couple of her little fifth grade friends. And she said, I think that you should ask all of your, uh, I was going to say contestants, but all of your uh, people on your show when they first felt famous. Uh, I like the idea and I've had some fantastic answers. So it, it doesn't necessarily have to be fame. Remember, we're talking about a little girl. So to broaden it, when did you first feel you were on the right track? When was there a moment in your career that meant something to you? When was there something that uh, Graham maybe would have made your parents change their mind, for example? Something that happened in, 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 along your uh, life that, that's worth mentioning, a moment. Meaningful moment, brother. Meaningful moment. I don't know. Uh, you know, I've, I, I don't. 
I, I've always, I don't know. It, you know, I, I, I could name drop people, I suppose, and say, oh, you know, I know those people, so it must be something, you know. Uh, Some of the, it's just, it doesn't have to be, it's just something that comes to mind of a moment. Deep thoughts. Yeah. What do you okay. think? It's okay. You're you just the only it. one who hasn't answered it out of like 800 people. <laughs> I, I, I mean, if, if there was a moment that, that made me go, okay, uh, you know, I've kind of reached a new plateau, sort of, so to speak, you know, um, it was now I have a weird name, right? So right. my entire life has been going on, you know, from from road trips with my family to being on the road to all the gas stations for decades all the places that you go where you have the little tourney thing and there's keychains or there's little license plates or little things that you can buy yeah. with your name on them. They never say no. Never our... ever been able to, to participate yeah. in that, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and then one day after, I think I've been, I've been playing with Kelly for a few years. We're in Chicago and you know, like always, there's there's a there's a a crowd of kids like hanging out in, in Chicago. It was I can't remember which theater it was, but but the buses you park like right under the L train, right at the back of the theater. I can't remember which theater it is. Anyway, there's a bunch of kids out there, and of course we're like, ah, they think this is Kelly's bus, and they're going to be so disappointed when it's the band. Um, and so we get off the bus, and this girl is standing there and she's and she people are passing her by and i get off and she's like hey anar and i'm like oh what's up and she hands me a a a, a figure an action figure from toys r us that is some action figure from some like medieval kind of game and the character is it's, he's called Anar's Flag Bearer. I still have the thing in the box, <laughs> in the thing, displayed proudly with a bunch of other trinkets from the road. But, uh, and, and with that was also um, a, a, a box of custom-made M&Ms that had a really goofy picture of me on it with like a, a, a birthday party hat and one of those things coming out of it yeah. on all M&Ms. And... I thought of all those keychains and all those times when uh, there was something I was like, I got an action figure that this person went and found that, that, that was like, I, I've kind of hit a whole other sort of level of, yeah, I'm on a tour bus. I've got catering was a big thing. The first time I ever had catering, I was like, Oh, I'm really, this is, it. I went to town. I, you know, I you had know? this, you, I, I don't, this is random. I know Graham, but so we were in Canada and they made these caramelized Brussels sprouts. And it was the best food I'd ever eaten. I, I, you know, I'm not, I, I crapped green for like four days. <laughs> I, I hate plates of them. And I, Scott, actually, I, I, uh, he didn't No, I'm not eating them. I need them. I'm like, they're amazing, man. I'm seriously, she cut me off. She wouldn't give me any more. So then I was telling people on the crew, go get me some Brussels sprouts, go get me some Brussels sprouts. And I got Scott to try them and he, he ate uh, two plates of them. But I was looking at her like, ain't going to cut him off, are you? Uh, you know, there's a, there's a price to pay with Brussels sprouts. Oh, I love them. I'm fiend. But yeah, I was hurting for a bit. I really did. I ate about four plates of Brussels sprouts. Yeah. You I, know, think, I, think, I think the thing that made my, my, my parents or, or whatever, if you're talking about that, like sort of recognize like, or stop being so scared. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
of the, of the life that I, I was living in my you know early days. But the first time, I, I guess I was like 28 when the band Gowdy, when we got signed to Elektra. Um, that was a band that like, you know, my dad's a crazy fan of music. Um, you know, mostly 50s stuff, big country encyclopedia. Um, and that was a band that he could, that he was starting like, oh, you guys have some, some catchy melodies and stuff. And then once there was investment from somebody else in that, um, I think all of the, the whatever I'd put myself through for the previous, you know. So I listened to a bit. And so the, the problem is when you released the first album, I don't know if it was a problem, but it was the same day that the Metallica guys were going up against Napster. Well, yeah. Uh, um, yeah. Lars Ulrich uh, signed us to his vanity, vanity label under Electra. We were one of four groups signed to it. And yeah, our the morning, I, Johnny, one of the guys and I were in L.A. for the release day. We had a whole like a 12 hour day of phone calls to like with Rolling Stone and whatever to talk about how cool we thought we were and our, you know, debut, you know, major label release, blah, blah. And on the way, Dan McCarroll calls us, our A&R guy, and was like, hey, have you guys seen CNN today? And we were like, no. And he was like, I'll meet you at the office. And that whole day turned into us answering something we had no, it was the morning that him and Dr. Dre and all those guys went and like went after Napster. And um, so, yeah, those interviews were kind of like trying to answer questions like, why does Metallica hate their fans? And we're like, I don't even know what Napster is. I, we don't know what <laughs> file sharing is. But I tell you what, you know, um, it, I think people understand now what Lars and Dre were trying to do. They, yeah. they were not trying to protect their own interests as much as they were trying to protect us. Um, they, they were they were looking at the future and recognizing that uh, if we begin this now, 20 fucking one years ago, almost to the oh, four days ago, five days ago, 21 years, five days ago, um, uh, then 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 we're not going to be able to have the system to cultivate new talent to be able to get to a place to where they become the next whatevers, you know, if, if we would never have heard of all of our heroes, if their art was given away uh, from the beginning Um, there, there's no way to invest in that growth to then after like maybe record three, you start making money kind of thing. And, and it was true. Uh, in those days, there, there still wasn't a, a real way to measure that stuff. But after three months, they at least figured out that we had had like something like 40,000 downloads of our shit that nobody paid for. Um, yeah. A brand new band who just spent a ton of money for a record label, those 40,000, if we would have had those 40,000 sales, you know, things could have been different. Um, you know, we made our own internal mistakes. Um, but uh, but you know, once the bean counters get to get to the books and and look at sales, they're not caring about downloads at that point. Um, so they, they were they 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 were unfortunately you know I guess uh, looked at as being greedy when what they were really trying to do was keep us from where we are now, still fighting for the ability to hold on to our intellectual property. Um, so and we wonder why. Um, why we don't, you know, people that wonder why, like, why aren't there bands like this and that anymore? Well, it's because the years that you didn't know what was going on with those bands, while there was a system that was cultivating them to become awesome, doesn't exist anymore. 
So yeah. unfortunately, yeah. You know, question, Graham. So um, I'll, I'll get asked a lot. So when you guys are setting up the stage, like what were the STP guys doing all day? Because they didn't sound check or whatever you say. What were they doing? And I'm like, I don't know, rock star guy stuff. <laughs> but were they doing interviews all day or what did what did the band do when we were working? You know, it varied. It varied to where they were. You know, a lot of time they'd stay in the hotels. Sometimes they'd venture out if their wives were in town. Maybe they'd go out, you know, but a lot of time they'd stay pretty close to the hotel. Um, you know, if you have a character like Scott, you know, who attracted attention, you'd have to keep him under wraps. Um, but, um, you, you know, they, they were they were not uh, as, I mean, for me, um, we would just do our daily stuff. You know, there wouldn't be a lot of, um, you know, causing any problems at all. You know, it's... Uh, I hate to not be able to give any any tidbits. No, you're okay. I just wonder. I mean, you know, it's when you're younger, you you think, oh, I don't know. They're like they're they're partying all day. Sometimes you 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 don't want to know. Sometimes you're like you've got enough on your plate as it is, and you sometimes you know don't care. That uh, you know, best not to know. Remember when I first started touring, and you're you're out in whatever some random place, and then you just run into everybody at the mall, <laughs> and you're like, ah, oh, that's what you guys are doing today. <laughs> Same as us. Yeah, 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 yeah. But you know, a lot of the artists, you know, I mean, Katie would go off and do her thing. You know, she was again somebody who didn't want to be with anybody per se. She want to, you know, didn't want anyone hanging around her to go with her. She just wanted to be free to go off and do her stuff. Tracy might want to have someone go with her just to keep her company um you know I, it all varies band to band um so cool. i have no no set set play with anything really it depends on the personality involved really you know yeah, fair enough golf clubs golf clubs oh to go on the day after school find a place to go golf it's the best and especially if you're doing sheds or some or even arenas there's always a place right around that you can hit at least practice balls or do something there's always a course close dude yeah the 2013, my, and and that can't that helped me out so much in 2013 when kelly and maroon five did a tour together i brought my golf clubs and there's a few venues that have a uh, have a setup in the back where you can swing some clubs and pittsburgh has a little uh uh man-made pond with a little you know uh what do you call it astroturf deck about 100 and i don't know 30 yards out in the middle of the pond you can also try to hit them over the pond and a little place you can hit and they sell you a bag of balls for 15 bucks um and that was the morning that i met the the maroon five dudes it was like our second or third show and i was up early hitting balls into the water and uh and levine gets off the bus and he's like whoa what are you doing and i was like man check it out and Hand him my club, hit a few, and he goes, come here. We go to their backline truck, and in the nose was at least a baker's dozen of uh, sets of golf clubs. So that whole tour, every morning, I'd get a text, and it would be, it would be Adam, uh, Matt Flynn, the drummer, um, uh, their, one, of their, one of their tour managers, um, like five of us. I played 36 days of golf on a 48 day run. Like oh, yeah. show day, we get up at show day, go play, come home, take a nap, play the gig days off. I'd meet at their hotel or they'd pick me up on the way. It was amazing. It was, it was the best. Um, 
I think yeah. I must travel. I must must tour with different bands who don't do that. I mean, I can't think of any band apart from Garbage, who actually had the, the to go out and they called it hack and slash. They went out in a, yeah. in a golf carts and they would just go for it with yeah. loads of booze, you know. It's but, just a um, great way to kill the day, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> all yeah, day. Hacking away. Yeah. With the cranberries, we'd bring a ping pong table and they'd all play ping pong all day. Yeah, the fray had had a, had a ping pong table out. It's broken now, but yeah, that was one it's thing. It's a we, bitch to get a ping pong table across the country, man. They yeah. don't like being moved. They would take a ping pong table and a basketball goal. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, guys, um, unless you have anything else that you wanted to make sure to say, or bro, yeah, what yeah. do you got lined up? So you're going to do some fray stuff, Anar. I'm assuming. Yeah, well, we're making up. We, uh, when the pandemic hit, we were on the East Coast. We were at in Mohegan Sun the day that the state of emergency went down. So we all hauled ass back from there. So October, November, we're making up, finally making up like a handful of shows that got canceled and then uh, see what's going on with next year. Um, cool. But, uh, but yeah, but I'm, you know, I'm 50, I'm, I turned 51 this year. Um, uh, I've got a, uh, you know, disc problems and everything else from just uh, torn and, 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 and teching too. Like I would, you know, I'm, I've never been afraid to go out on the road and like string guitars, you know, if I wasn't playing them one summer. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I've kind of transitioned to more of a, of a studio thing here in yeah. town, which is great. I'm working with a lot of young bands. I work with a nonprofit here. Um, that where they let me sit and consult with young artists trying to make a go at this and i you know speak to them like you know not a person with a tie um like a person who's you know who smelled everything from the dingiest fucking nightclubs to wembley stadium you know what i mean and so sure. it's amazing it's really invigorating you know it makes me keeps me hustling watching these kids you know trying to trying to trying to convince them like look the 21st century tells you that you got to go get a fucking marketing degree to do anything in this business but i'm telling you you just need to go out there and try to be awesome try yeah, to hustle fucking faces try to just you know do the work like make the songs that make people want to work with you and then somebody else will market that shit for you but you know <laughs> yeah. try to be the band that you that you want to go see yeah. you know that's that ain't easy um but you'll pass yeah. up everybody if that's your focus you know yeah for sure what about you, Graham? Do you have anything lined up yet? Well, um, David Cross. Oh, okay. oh, awesome. Yeah. I toured with him in uh, 2018. And is this like okay with you? Um, you look like, like God. Yeah, you look like the heavens have come. And, uh, yeah. It's well, like I mean, a if we are in the presence of greatness, we are aware. Yeah. Okay. Well, that, yeah, right. Um, okay. So let me start again then. Okay. So, yes, David Cross. Uh, 2018, I did a, a North American run with him, and then we went to Europe. Um, it was during the, obviously the Trump era, and so you know it was a tough one with him. Um, but anyway, uh, he's now got a new um, thing coming together, and he we spoke the other day, and so he's asked me to get involved, and so um, we'll see what happens. He's so good. I mean, again, you know, a lot of things are going to be dependent on this virus. 
Yeah. And, you know, uh, not only the virus, but in Europe, it's going to be Brexit and how that's going to pan out with, you know, visas aren't necessarily the big issue. It's more to do with tr transport, getting it around. And so, you know, we'll have to see how that pans out. But anyway, um, and then I, I think Lyle will be going out next year. Um, we'll see if he wants me or not. Um, He's so good, too. Well, yeah. Yeah, no, it's very, I love his very, 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 um, I mean, he's a guy that you could have a program and just him on talking yeah. about. And this came up randomly because I did this book and the book, uh, you know, I, I tried not to talk shit. I don't think I did. And people liked it a lot. It was the number one new release on Amazon and biographies. Mm -hmm. It's still on Amazon's bestsellers list. Mm -hmm. And it was about touring with Scott and all these other bands and just my experiences with it. And I think I, and I think people appreciated. I didn't slag women off the whole time. In fact, none at all. And it's not a book filled with sordid stories about what assholes these guys are, because I I don't think they are. You know, you know, with the Scots of the world, I try to understand where they're coming from, and you know, but I appreciate what I what I got out of it, which. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think if you get you can there's layers that you go through. You, there's the outside layer that you're lighting guy or whatever. You you'll get the feel of what's going on. You'll see the interaction on the stage, whatever. And then if you peel down, and you'll go into the dressing room and then into the hotel room and into the bus and all the rest of the of the individual and see what goes on. It can be completely different. So yeah, I, I, I'm not you know I have a ton of stories. I I have no plans to write any books. Well, you know, you, you, you've got to you've got to get your facts right. I mean, it's always interesting when someone like Keith Richards writes a biography and I'm thinking, hey, well, you know, how is that possible? Um, <laughs> and, and so you go you go through all this. Thing. I, I did I did a blog once on, you know, I, I was working with an artist who was driving me nuts, was driving me nuts. And he became a a um, an alter ego. And I wrote like a diary of what was going on. From a from a third person, right? Mm -hmm. Looking in, and I I gave everyone names, you know, assumed names, and and I I would trawl through the internet and pull off illustrations to show how crazy and stupid things were. And this went on. It became a big popular thing. Once it got out to the right people, it became like a must. It was like car, cartoon strip. You know, you'd read at the bottom be a cartoon strip, and you, what what's the next day? What's going to happen? And it was like that. And I'd get people writing to me saying, when's the next episode? Yeah. And it wasn't, it wasn't, it was purely for my benefit, just as a kind of release valve to say, how fucked up is this? Yeah, you know? yeah. And, and, but, but I couldn't, I couldn't go any further than that. I'm going to cut the part where I ask you, Graham, about uh, your famous moment or whatever. And then. Well, all, all I'll, all I'll, Joel, all I'll say on the famous moment is yeah. this, you know, my, my father went wherever. So I have, you know, he wouldn't be that interested. My mother was always somebody who was, you know, she raised three kids and I think she was just, you know, just get a job, get a job. As far as being famous, whatever, I don't, I think recognition is probably what I'm going to say is the recognition of what I do and what I achieve. Right. And I know it's a bit of, a, it's only about you, but when I first saw my name on an album sleeve or on a tour program, I kind of thought to myself, you know what? I've finally got somewhere. 
someone is recognizing me that I'm on a tour of substance, you know, because I remember, you know, applying for visas and they wanted to know who you'd work for. Oh, can you provide us with any proof of who you've worked for? So I guess what I'm getting at is when you get to the point where you, you have a nice tour program and your name is on there, it's a recognition of how you, how far you've gone. Yeah. You know, and, and if you, if you get anything else as a recognition, you know, I'm not going to get stopped walking down the street saying, Oh, it's Graham Cooper. You know, I never get that, but I, I look at when I, when I had in the past going to old school reunions, you know, um, it's nice to be able to like feel that I've achieved something, you know, um, and I've made a career of it. And the proof of it is the fact that, you know, you're kind of documented in that sense. And it's not really fame, but it's something that over a period of time, we don't have certificates or, you know, whatever. It's just, that's for me, it's just a case of, I've managed to, to work and stay working with a lot of A-listed artists, you know, and that for me is, you know, that's it, you know. I, I can't get any fame out of it. You know, there's no, there, there isn't any fame. I mean, I know if you're playing in band or whatever and you're recognised on stage, it's different. But, you know, I think if there's a fame, it's people recognising me on stage and asking for a set list. <laughs> yeah, um, that's the one I have trouble with is the set list because they're, they're photocopies. They're, they're, there's nothing, I don't know. They're just, it's just a photocopy. No, 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 you give them, you give them a complete, you give, you give them something else. You make a set list up, you know, you get, get Ozzy Osbourne's, um, you know, track listing and put that and give it to them, you know, get over it, you know. I mean, you know, it's, it's, But I'm never rude to fans, you know. It, the fans are the key to everything. But sometimes they can be really pushy. But um, uh, we we've always tried to when we tour, we've always tried to make sure that you know everyone's looked after, you know, from the top to the bottom. You know, in the crew sense, you know, I always go and see the merchandise. I always go and see the truck drivers, and I'll always introduce myself to them and say, if there's anything you need, let me know. Yeah, you know, everybody's a team player artist everyone and so yeah. um that's how i work you know oh uh, you're a good guy you go. graham you're I know, I know i know i'll pay enough money for this Ainar <laughs> <laughs> told me i don't know <laughs> recognition is always a good thing it's adulation that's the thing that 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 is the 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 byproduct of any sort of fame that nobody really knows whether or not they're going to be able to deal with and it's adulation i think that pushes people to escape through things because yeah the 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 weirdest part about seeing somebody and and i'm just next to the famous person and in that moment after the show i'm recognized but the next day they're not going to recognize me on the street um but I'm not the one that they're coming up to crying whose life has been changed by what you've done. And that adulation, that familiarity from a stranger who thinks that they know everything about you is, is uncomfortable. Yeah, um, I, would, I would not. I understand it as a fan, but, I, but, but as someone who's sort of seen that in small doses, but been next to people who receive it in crazy giant doses yeah no thanks I, I i totally understand why people like neil pert never went to meet and greets 
I understand why somebody like Scott Weiland or somebody else might turn to something to just shut all that stuff off because it's an unfair expectation um, of a personality that you probably don't possess, but you do in the eyes of this person who only knows you from what they can get from your lyrics and from interviews. Um, yeah. Yet, yet they know everything about you. Um, that's got to be a crazy them too. I mean, the thing with they're that if they're that into it, they're they have a void of their own that they're trying to fulfill. You have to be cool, and you have to recognize like I exist because because of that love and that adulation. It's a it's a it's a crazy balancing game, you know. Yeah, I was I maybe what, it's just because of the touring at a younger age, but I just like I never asked for an autograph in my life. I was just always scared to, and I met a couple of heroes when I was young that that. Uh, I know it was my fault. I caught them at the wrong time and asked the wrong questions and was too in their face. I was too much like this. And, you know, and it, and, and they weren't the person that I expected them to be. And I took that as a, as a negative thing about it's them. Both. And I was yeah, like, that's I, all I my, my fault. Friend, I don't want to do the... this ever again to my heroes. So I'm not going to go meet them. <laughs> I'm a little kid. I'm like in junior high. We get our parents to drop us off at the movie theater. And there's a, uh, there's a hockey player named Luke Robitaille. Yeah, and, and he's in the urinal. He he has his dick in his hand. He's taking a piss, and my friend is like, a, you know, he's bugging him. He's asking him questions. He wants his autograph. So, the, and I'm a young, I'm I'm young, but at the same, I'm 13, but I or so, and, and I'm like, dude, let the guy at least like wash his hands, man. So he he comes out and uh, he probably signed my friend's autograph. I I don't remember. But he left and I said to my buddy, like, dude, that was like, that was really rude, man. You know, the guys there with his family, I made this thing out of it. And my buddy's like, dude, he gets paid a lot of money. And part of the money that he gets paid is to deal with this. And I've always disagreed with that. That is yeah, that's not, not true. That's not, that's, that is not, that's a, that's uh -huh. a very common perception, but it's a misperception. Dude, I, you know, watching Kelly Clarkson deal with such grace um, for so many years, with so much unfair aspects, like imagine going to the, you go to the grocery store all the time and you're waiting in line and you, and, and when you're bored waiting for the person in front of you, you look at all the, the rags that are all the tabloids that are there. They're horrible. They're horrible. Can you horrible. imagine what it must be like to go, no matter where you go in the world, when you're just trying to be a normal person and you see those things about you on the cover of those things, um, the way that Marvel. she dealt with that and was able to not fall into some sort of horrible addiction um, and to still feel powerful within herself um, as a person is a real testament to her fortitude. Um, Absolutely. And, you know, it's 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 those things that, you know, once you start once you start being somebody that's like, yeah, like the little watchdog, like I'm working for this person now and I'm now I'm one of. Uh, I'm in their circle. I'm part of this trust. And it's like my sister or it's like my brother, whoever I'm playing with, those things start to take on a whole new aspect of like, man, how much of a dick have I been about my perception of famous people, athletes, you know, rock stars, whatever the fuck. Um, just because I got an opinion about somebody that I've never met in my life. And I only judge them by what they do. So, on so yeah, so Bob Dylan, you have to sign something where you can't look at them. I'm like, have you ever tried to eat lunch with someone staring at you and not blinking for 40 minutes? It's <laughs> awkward, man. <laughs> or you're eating your Brussels sprouts. <laughs> yeah, anyhow. But it is true. And I tell you what, 
there's there's nothing I, I, if if everybody could experience what it's like on a on a tour if you could just have the skills to just be useful in some capacity to go out on the road and spend some time with fucking truck drivers and and riggers and everybody else my favorite part of of being on the road was waking up early and just going and watching it all go up um oh no kidding and, and talking and talking to, to and hanging out with the truck drivers and all those guys and it's it's such a traveling circus i've been lucky enough to be everyone that i've been around whether it's a small you know eight-man crew or 50 people traveling together i've been lucky enough to where it's always been fun you know yeah. it's always been fun and it, and and when you're out together you really are a traveling gang that protects its own and and that's 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 my favorite part about about all of it it's my favorite part about being in a band that sort of you against the world kind of thing and when you're on one of those traveling insanity fucking tours where you're just living the same day over and over in a different place that looks the same, but looks kind of different. But I don't know where we are, but who cares? We're together. Man, there's there's nothing like that in the world. It really isn't, you know. Uh, it's your family. Yeah. It's your family. And then you know, a lot of us had weird upbringings or problems. And so you create this family, which yeah. is why you care when the rock stars don't hire you because you thought you were families. So, yeah, but, you know, you know, but you're gonna part get- I, I liked that I that my favorite is just watching the audience as the show begins and how happy they all are. Ooh, that explosion when <clears throat> when you get that first blackout after the opener's done and you're about to walk out is it's amazing. Yeah, yeah these people are already they they've they worked their butts off, they have their own problems, they have so much going on in their lives and they've made a point to come see you. And um and they're elated and they should be. And so your job is to make it where they enjoy the, well, now 80 bucks, a hundred bucks, whatever the tickets costs yeah. so that they, they got it. Cause for some of those people, that's a lot of money, man. Yeah. So I, I just like watching the audiences and, and I, I think, I think people. anybody, any, anybody um, involved with a tour, you know, sound crew, lighting, backline, you know, when that band hits the stage, it's a it's a big thing. You know, I, I mean, I've done it many, many times. Where I just feel like this is this is it. This is why I've done this. Yeah, this, I've come. I'm part of it. You know. Yeah. So, you know, it's that's that's the kind of almost fame bit. You know, you're part of it. But um, it, it's it's a great feeling. It's a great feeling. And I've never ever thought, you know, since I've been doing this job, it's ever been work as such it's it's been a challenge of course but i never wake up in the morning going Ooh, you know i don't want to do this anymore i've always loved doing it i've loved the fact that we've been able to travel we've been able to see places that many many people haven't seen it, it, even if it's just a snapshot you know we've been given that lucky opportunity so when we decide to retire or whatever age that's going to be we don't necessarily necessarily have to go out and travel again <laughs> we've been we've been youthful enough to go out and see it you know, and how many times we've been to these places. And so I, I count myself very lucky. It's a pro and a con. There's obviously pros for what we do and there's cons for what we do. But I wouldn't trade it in. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's always been, I, I always hated working in an office. And um, to, to get this opportunity to meet so many interesting people um, and experience so many different things of this life, then, as I say, I wouldn't trade it by anything, you know. So... May it long continue. 
Yeah. I yeah. hope. I hope. Well, thank you very much, guys. It's been really, it's been a pleasure. <laughs> it's been yeah, a pleasure. it was fun. Yeah, it was a good one. Look out for your book, by the way. Okay. In Vegas, we were at the end of the um, Family Values tour. We had two shows on our own at the Hard Rock in Las Vegas. And the night before, Wyland couldn't get any Vicodin. So it was a real, real struggle. He was like really erratic and difficult. And <clears throat> the band didn't want to know. And so we came in, we flew into Vegas and he just gone. Car, try and score whatever he had to score. We got to the hotel and it was a Sunday night and we, you two were playing at the Thomas Mac Arena. And so I, I'd gone down there to see the show. Anyway, before the end of the, for the, the show as such, they come after me and say, you're going to have to go back to the hotel. It's really important. So they, they got the U2 runner to take me back to the hotel because Wyland had been arrested by the house security for allegedly assaulting his wife. Oh. And what had happened was that he'd asked me if he could use my room. He didn't tell me why, but he said, can I use your room? I said, fine, okay, no problem. I'm going out soon. And so he called a doctor, one of the house doctors, to come by and get Vicodin that he needed. Now, he always carried with him, uh, during the beginning of the tour, he fell off stage in Boston, and he'd always carried with him the x-rays of the fall. So he could use that as his excuse to get any medication. So he, he gets to the, the room, his wife finds out. So she confronts him and the doctor in my room saying, you know who this guy is? Do you know Scott Wyland? you know he's a drug? You know? And the guy didn't know anything. So he just said, listen, listen, I'm going to write down the script and you know, I'm out of here. So he disappeared. So anyway, so they get into it and he, he allegedly manhandles her to get out of the, out of the room. She calls security. They have a policy where they put him under some sort of house arrest. So I'm there. So the scene is set that I'm in this my room with Scott. I've got Charlie Hernandez. I've got John Brannigan from the, the agency and a couple other people. They're not letting us leave. They've got a security guy on the door and they've got a security guy outside the door. Oh. So they're holding us because if she goes ahead to press charges, he'll get taken by the cops. So <laughs> how crazy it is. He says to me, well, um, call my lawyer. And I said, call your lawyer. You, you fired your lawyer. You know, you fired him last week. So having spoken to Mary, I said, listen, Mary, you know, what you're about to do will determine a few things here. But I'm not going to tell you what you should or shouldn't do. It's entirely up to you. So anyway, she, she presses charges. So he gets hauled off to, um, to jail. Well, of course, you know, this is now like one in the morning. And so I'm post bail. Post, I've never posted bail for anybody. How do you do this? You know, so being in my naive state, I get the runner to take me to the bail bond place to post uh, post a bond. I slap down the credit card, three thousand dollars, and they said no cash. We have to have cash, so I have to go all the way back to the casino. This is old town, new town. Pick up cash, three thousand dollars, and head back to the bail bond. Give them the cash, and they said you can pick him up. You can pick him up tomorrow morning, midday. Okay, so by which time we've now moved him out of the hotel to the Four Seasons at the end of the Strip. 
to keep it down because it's now breaking on the news channels that he's been arrested again. Oof. So, so I'm there, um, get him into the room, we sit him down, and uh, the first thing he says to me is, I've got no Vicodin. I can't operate. I've got a show tonight. I can't do anything. So I said, okay, you know, again, it, my naivety at the time. Okay, we'll get a doctor. So doctor turns up, young lady, she comes in. And um, so what's the problem? And he says, well, you know, uh, oh, hang on. I've got these x-rays. I'll show you. I had this fall, you know, a month or so ago. And I need some Vicodin. And she said, oh, okay. I said, well, um, when, when did you have Vicodin last? And he said, oh, I think about two weeks ago. So she writes him, you know, the script and disappears, calls it in. Anyway, once she's left, he was like after me every second. Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? So eventually I'd go downstairs, get the stuff, bring it to his room. And then he's got his Vicodin, taking it, you know, in the shower, happy, whatever. And then uh, we go to the venue, first night of the two shows. He's in the dressing room getting ready. And then the phone call comes in to Charlie from the first doctor saying, we have a problem. You can only have a certain amount of Vicodin within a certain period, and you've had too much. And so, because they're all on the same system, so it's all flagging up. So we have to go back to Wyland to get all the stuff out. So he hands back really reluctantly whatever he's got in his pocket, by which time the band have found out. And of course, the DeLeo brothers are just fuming, fuming. So they go next door, you know, give them a good hiding. Um, and, then, and then we have to fly him out that night out of Vegas back to Los Angeles because they can't, he, he's got no Vicodin. So I have to take him to the airport. No one's talking to him, you know, so I take him to the airport, put him on a flight, gets the other end. He's picked up by there by Charlie's people. They take him to a hotel. They have a guy sitting outside his hotel room to take him to see a doctor the following morning, to get a prescription, to fly back with a security guard, hand him over to do the last show. And of course, on stage he's going, this is the last show of STP, da, 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 you know, whatever. Again, no one's talking to him. I then take him back to the airport and fly with him back to LA, okay? And I have in my storage unit framed with the air tickets with the bail bond for three grand <laughs> and the door and the door thing that, that should say you can't you, you, I hear you knocking but you can't come in unless you're the Las Vegas Police Department That's <laughs> made up but that that was the memories that was, that was the story and that 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 really really drained me so much for those three days dealing with that um yeah. and and you know it's one of one of the stories that now those stories are not funny no, you know, not at all. They're not funny stories at all because it shows you what, what we were having to go through. But there are the other artists that I can tell stories that are not that are funny, that yeah. are humorous, that are like crazy, but they're funny. And and I think that was the difference between the two. I think I think Scott was just really at times um was was sometimes, I mean, you know, I don't want to say it as such, but he could be really nasty. Yeah. He could be really nasty to you. And he can make people, I mean, I've seen him make some of his assistants cry for no reason. And the assistants lo loved him to death, but he could be that nasty to you that you'd really feel. And, and for me, that wasn't how it should be. Um, 
but there are times when he was really sweet. You know, it was just the, the personality, the, the bipolar in him was playing in. And so it, it, um, it was tough. It was really tough. And sometimes you question your ability. Are you qualified to be able to handle these sort of things? You know, because you're, you're sitting on, you know, you're representing an artist. The management team don't care. They're, all they care about is the money. That's sure. Coming. They don't give a monkey's about, as long as the show happens, Graham, and you've got a check in your hand, I don't care. You and you know? wonder why Heavy C says, screw this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, there you go. But I, I did come across a photograph here, um, which I'm going to scan and send to you, but I'm not sure if you're in it or not. But it's got, uh -huh. you know, Hernandez, you've got, Char uh, got um, all the characters in here. You might be in there, I don't know. Anyway, I'll dig it and send it over to you, and you can see if you are. All right. I'll, I'll send you those other photographs anyway. Please, yeah, yeah, no, I'll, I'll share them with the crew guys as long as you don't mind. So, yeah, yeah, well, that's fine with me. Hey, thanks for watching Party Like a Rockstar. If you're not already subscribed to the Facebook or YouTube channels, do it. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. The handle is Party of Stars. Thanks for watching. You'll see you next time.